Hey guys, this is Doug Aldrich from Burning Rain and White Snake, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Hey, this is Scott Warren from the DR Disciples, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Hey, this is Vivian Campbell, and you are listening to Focus on Metal. Hi everybody, this is Tracy G, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Hey, this is Jeff Pilson, and you are listening to Focus on Metal. Enjoy. Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to episode 400 of Focus on Metal. Yep, can you believe it? Episode 400 is upon us, and I have to admit that this one definitely snuck up on Richie and I. We were uh, pretty much going through the audio for the uh, last couple weeks and trying to get everything mixed, mastered, and published out, ready to go to our radio partners, and uh, weren't even keeping track of exactly what the episode numbers were. Just trying to make all of the dates around the uh, the Thanksgiving holidays here work. That and uh, trying to slip in a few shows as well. And then next thing you know, bam, we realize, holy crap, 400 is upon us. And it uh, just happened to work out that uh, we had the right combination of stuff to make a, a pretty cool episode 400. Because usually, you know, in the, uh, in the podcast game... The uh, the hundred episodes are definitely one of those things you try to celebrate. And you know, back in October of 2012, episode 100 is when we kicked off all of our Saxon episodes by looking at the first four Saxon albums. Yep, I actually forgot that. That's how we kicked off episode 100 was with our Saxon project that's been going on now for uh, now six years. And then uh, in November of 2014 was episode 200. That one there, we did a little bit of an accept celebration. Had Mark Turniawan talking about the Blind Rage release. And again, that one there was one that snuck up on us because we had some pretty cool episodes before and after that one. And then episode 300 was our Master of Puppets episode, Master of Puppets Part 1, followed by episode 301 with Master of Puppets Part 2. And if you want to hear any of those, you can obviously go up to focusonmetal.net, hop over to the episodes page, scroll down, and there's your streaming and download links to go back and uh, revisit any of those past 100th episodes. But this week, we uh, have another special one for you, and uh, those of you who have listened to us for a long time know that along with Saxon, another running theme here with us is Ronnie James Dio. And a few weeks ago, Richie was able to talk with Craig Goldie, then... Uh, What do you know? He ends up talking to author James Curl, who just put out a brand new book on Dio entitled Ronnie James Dio, a biography of a heavy metal icon. And I should clarify when I say brand new, I just really mean it's a new book. It's actually been out since uh, May. So what do you say we uh, kick off our 400th episode focus on Dio with Richie's chat with longtime Dio guitarist, Craig Goldie. Hi, this is Craig Goldie. You know me best for Dio and Dio Disciples, and now Dream Child. And you're listening to Focus on Metal. Hey, man, so sorry about what happened on, uh, I think it was, uh, was it Thursday or Friday that we got messed up? I think it was Thursday. Trying to be nice from the guy that called late, you know, and then I tried to catch up. but just, I never got a chance to catch up with a couple of people. I, I texted you. And I thought, maybe, but, but I guess we're good. So thank you for calling, for being so cool about rescheduling. I'm really sorry about that. So Craig, um, now now that I'm speaking to you, I've already spoken to uh, Doug Aldrich and Vivian Campbell and Tracy G. Wow, you just got rolling left. So Craig, if I was to mention the date, August the twenty second, nineteen eighty seven. Uh, would you know what I was alluding to if I asked you that? August 22nd, 1987. It's, I know it should, but I can't think of anything right off the bat. It's um, Castle Donington, the Monsters of Rock Festival. Oh, really? Oh, wow. No kidding. Wow. Wait a minute. I should have. Oh, it's sitting right in front of my face. August. I got a, I got a poster of Monsters of Rock. It says August 22nd. I should have guessed that. I didn't even bother to look. Wow. So, Craig, do you have any uh, vivid memories of that day at all? Because uh, I was actually at that concert. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because that was the first time I was in a headlining band. And uh, before that, 
that we were with Deep Purple, with Jeffrey and Foreigner with Jeffrey, and we didn't have any hardly any room with Deep Purple, which is cool. I was just happy to be on on tour with Deep Purple. They're my favorite band, and Foreigner was amazing. But that age of provocateur, uh, it was very clever. So everybody can see everything. It was a slanted stage, so so we didn't have much room on that either. And if we did. You know, it, it, we just had to be super careful with boots. <laughs> and but um, once we, when I got into Dio, not only was it a dream come true because he was and still is my favorite singer, but then being on a headlining stage, it was like all of a sudden, whoa! I felt like I had to take a taxi from one end of the, of the stage to the other. <clears throat> and then Donington, eighty thousand people at the time. And there was Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley. They were being you know, all cool to me, you know, because everybody loves Ronnie, and Ronnie just knew everybody, and everybody loved him. You know, the guys from Bon Jovi were totally cool, you know. And Richie Sambora comes over to me, and goes, "Go out there and kick some ass for me, man." You know, just being all, you know, everybody supporting each other. And uh, <clears throat> Ronnie knew that I was about ready to try something that I'd never done before, and could have either gone really good or really bad. And he knew I was really nervous. So just before we went on, you know, Ronnie came out of his area where he tries to get his head together before he goes out. Takes the time to come over and just say, just remember who you are. Just remember who you are. And then he walks back over. And that was the time where I I played something on my guitar and tried to get the crowd to sing back. And it started off slow but it began to pick up and finally it was just like everybody was having fun with it next thing i know it's like eighty thousand voices you know singing back to my guitar it was just like whoa i was like it worked you know (laughs) but it could have gone really bad (laughs) but those are those are the things that i remember the most that everybody was just so cool and that um what could have gone super bad went super good So, Craig, did you have a lot of stage fright on that day? Can you remember? Oh, extremely. Yeah, extremely. I, I get nervous before every show. It's getting better. I've only I've been doing it for 30 years. Even though, it, it, I think a lot of it's because I just care so much. And even now that Ronnie's not with us, he's, I still feel like he is. You know, when we go out and do the Dear Disciples stuff, then that music meant a lot to me. You know, I came from an abusive family in and out of the hospital and stitches and injuries and surgeries. And so I left home at the age of 14 and lived on the streets in a car, you know, and his was, his was the voice that I turned to, you know, after a beating, you know, and and it was just like, he was so expressive with the way he sang, you know, little did I know that the, you know, the whole world was like that. You know, when I joined the band, we got, I would see letters that, that people from the army would send to him thanking him for the music that he wrote that gave them the courage to go and face the unimaginable on the front lines in, in, in the time of war. It was just like, wow, you know. It, the, and this music can be as complex or as simple as, it could be just as simple as a couple of guys getting together and writing great music, or it could literally change the course of people's lives. You know, it's, it was really great to be a part of because I remember... Ronnie gave me an envelope when I was back in Rough Cut, and he said just it was an address because he knew I wouldn't argue. <laughs> he just said, "Could you go deliver this?" And it turned out to be uh, a, a rent check for one of his fans that was having trouble paying rent. Wow! Uh, he did a string of, um, of concerts to, to raise money to build a shelter for a charity because a lot of people fought to Los Angeles to get. Um, to get famous and then they end up in prostitution, even guys and girls both. And so there was a doctor that was going out on the streets and rescuing these children. And so they needed a shelter. So Ronnie did a string of concerts to build money for a shelter. And it wasn't just like a garage. It was a huge complex and they had people to help them get off drugs. They had counselors for, uh, for that. They had counselors for like psychiatrists and stuff. They had, they could get their, um, they can get their high school diploma. They can get a college degree, a bachelor's degree, a master's degree. And then there was a, a several years later, there was a, a reunion of a lot of the kids that had gone through that program. And one of them was a general in the army. And his, his before picture was just some kid who 
feed his pants because he was so high he didn't realize he was he had to pee. <laughs> and now he's the general of, of the United States Army. You know, the system, it can be that complex or it can be just as simple as great music. You know, it's, it's a trip. So, Craig, I know you said that you were a, a huge fan of Ronnie's music, be it with uh, with Rainbow or Sabbath or with, with early Dio. And I'm sure you would have heard what he was like uh, from other musicians who, who worked with him or musicians that you knew or maybe what you, you saw in interviews or, or read in magazine interviews. But when you really got to know him after joining Dio, um, do you think your expectations of the man were met at all? Yes. Anybody who likes his music knows him because he's so expressive. You know, the kind of things that he sang about that seemed to make him angry were the very same things that seemed to make us angry. The things that seemed to make him sad were the same things that made us sad. He was like our voice for the downtrodden and the black sheep of the globe and the people who felt they didn't fit in or belong and all over the world. You know, he created this world, you know, all were welcome as long as you were good to each other. And he had an imagination without boundaries. Uh, But, um, and I knew how nice he was just, just simply because of the way he spoke to the crowd on the live concerts and some of the bootlegs that I would get. I just like this guy, this guy sounds like a, you know, I thought he'd be like this really, you know, mean, you know, cause he looks so mean and, and, and rough and tough, you know, but then all of a sudden he's super nice when he talked to the crowd. So I thought, wow, you know, this, this is interesting. He must be a really nice guy. You can usually kind of pick up on stuff like that. Um, so if you loved his music, you knew him, but when you met him, he would just blow your mind with kindness. And a quick story is when I was in Rough Cut, because I was homeless, once I got into the band, I would go from each member of the band, I'd spend a week on their couch, and then I and I would rotate. And one time I was at one of the guy's houses, and I, I bought a tuna fish, I bought a tuna, can of tuna, made a tuna fish sandwich. And the guy came home and just threw a fit. It was his can of tuna. And that fit was heard around the world. You know, I was like, dude, I'll buy another can of tuna. You know, how much can tuna cost in 1983? Um, but that fit was heard around the world, and I didn't say a word. And the next thing I know, I look outside, and I think I see Ronnie's car pull up. Sure enough, it was Ronnie and Wendy uh, came up, both with holding two full bags of groceries. And they walk up the stairs. They didn't even have a free arm to knock, so they had to knock on the door with their feet. They, As I opened the door, they, 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 they stormed in, slammed the groceries on the table. They said, these are for Craig. Leave them alone. And they stormed out just as fast as they stormed in, back on their way to complete the recordings of Holy Diver. They stocked the recordings of Holy Diver so they could go to the store and pick out specific items that would add up to four bags of groceries over a can of tuna for me. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Really shows the character of the guy. Yeah, <laughs> and then I stand up in the van with him. And that was when I was in Rough Cut. That was before I was in a band with him, Yeah. Craig, it always fascinates me how Frontiers put all these bands together. Like, do they have a, like, a music collection and they, they open the inlay cards and it's like, okay, I think this singer in this band and then they take out another one would work with the two guys in this band and then they've got, oh, we need a drummer, so I've got this other band over here uh, and we're going to put them all together. And I, I've always wondered, how do they know it's actually going to work, like, creatively? And... And like financially and commercially as well, because there's so many of them out there. It's just that the process of them putting it all together, it, it, it really is. It really does intrigue me. Well, I, for one thing, they're, they're, the guys over at Frontiers are really good people. And they're helping us keep, you know, the music alive. Because the 80s based music has, you know, has been smiled upon by the global marketplace again. Uh, but the internet has changed things so drastically, you know, that basically you just, our music is getting stolen. And so even though it's lucrative to market yourself on the internet and record companies are not obsolete, it's just real difficult to make a living. You know, now that it's our time, a lot of, a lot of us guys in the eighties, uh, we were paid as sidemen. We didn't get, you know, we weren't an equal star like Aerosmith and the Van Halen's and guys like that, you know, who were multimillionaires, you know? And so when it came time for us to be able to at least just make, you know, the lion's share, all of a sudden they're stealing our music. And so we got to do like 10 different things at once. And so people, you know, they, 
they might call call us on it, but they're, the reason why we do 10 different things is because of you guys are stealing our music. And Frontiers, you know, is is just, they're, they're, they're fans of music. They're just fans, and they just, they, they, they just got to the hearts of all the 80s-based rock and, and some of the new guys, and they put out music and because they just know that some people really miss that type of stuff. And um, and I'm hoping that this Dream Child album, and they want to too, because Serafino called me at home and said, Craig, this is your band, and I want to make this as, as successful as possible. And um, and I knew what he meant by that. And, you know, I understand that, uh, like me, I go on YouTube, that's where I found those comments. You know, they don't make music like this anymore. You know, it's why we started this band in the first place. And, you know, I bought the CD, I bought the, 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 I bought the vinyl, you know, and as I moved from apartment to apartment and place to place, you know, some of those things go missing. I bought this stuff twice, so I feel, you know, perfectly comfortable with listening to YouTube you know, because I've already bought the stuff twice, <laughs> you know, but there's other people, you know, who, um, they're tired of got, they got tired of paying $15 for, for us for an album and only getting two good songs. You know, iTunes does have previews, but some, sometimes previews are misleading, just like movie previews. You go to a movie that you've seen a great preview of and you go spend 12 to $24 and later you find out that it was a stupid movie and you wasted your money. And so I get all that and, and bands are charging like $250 for, you know, nosebleed seats and a thousand dollars for meet and greet. And it's just, it's just crazy. We have to try to restore balance. And so I'm hoping that this album will help restore balance, you know, because it's a difficult proposition to give it your best and give it your all and ask for famous musicians to give it their best and give it their all and their best ideas only for it to be stolen. And uh, so hopefully, you know, somebody's got to stand up and go, hey, I'll do it, you know. And Frontiers has, has given me that opportunity to, and that freedom, you know, to be able to, to, try to, to try to do what I believe in, but at the same time, you know, work within the confines of the fact that, it, you know, there, it is a business. But luckily for Frontiers, the intention of the business doesn't compromise the quality of care. Well, Craig... My initial reaction when I heard that uh, you were doing the Dream Evil record, uh, I was a little bit disappointed because I was a huge fan of the uh, the Resurrection Kings record that you did uh, a couple of years ago. And I'm just wondering, do you think um, Frontiers are, are ever going to do another record? Well, actually, they do. We're, we're, we're um, right in the midst of, of negotiating the contract for the second Resurrection Kings album. Well, Craig, I'm really happy that, that you said that because I, I, I love the first record. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really, yeah, I, 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 look, I love those guys, and I also look, hope that we can do some touring with uh, Dreamchild. Well, Craig, I've been a big fan of Diego Valdez for a few years now. Um, I first heard about him through the band Helker, um, Argentinian band, and they're somewhere in the Circle record, and they, they had brought in an album a couple of years ago. Um, I am curious to find out, how did you hear about him in the first place? Well, a friend of his sent me an MP3 about seven years ago of a of a Dio cover of a song that Ronnie and I wrote together for the album uh, Killing the Dragon, a song called Push. And um, it was chilling. I mean, it sounded, it was scary. I listened to it and I, I turned it off before I could, I didn't even finish it. Then I had to go back later and finish it again. Because it was sounded like Ronnie had sang his, his has done a remake of his own song. It was that close, and so I I got a hold of Diego through his friend, and I told him how amazing I thought he was. But it was just too soon for something like that because we had just lost Ronnie, and I was just destroyed. And so I, it took a long time for me to get inspired to do original music again. And uh, but him and I became friends, and we, I said, you know, someday you and I are going to do an album together. And uh, so that day has come, and uh, I think, no, I mean, we're not trying to, I, I never once had to say, hey, could you sound a little bit more like Ronnie on this? <laughs> you know, he's just, he's influenced by him, just like I'm influenced by Blackmore. So there's going to be a, a little bit of Blackmore-esque to my playing, you know, and I'm trying real hard to get out of it, 
you know, but at the same time, I like that kind of style, you know, so I, I do, I do kind of incorporate a black Moorish type of stuff into the things that I do. Even on the resurrection Kings, there's some Blackmore type stuff. And, um, and that's just who I am, you know, he's the original, but I, you know, you, you kind of, you kind of play, you improvise them. Who you listen to the most is who you improvise, improvise the most like. And I listen to Richie the most. And I spent years trying to learn his solos note for note. And I just miss that kind of music. I miss that, that rainbow rising era, that, you know, deep purple. And, uh, so that's what we were trying to recapture. So when Serafino asked me, who would you get to sing? I said, well, hang on a second. Let me send you an MV3. And then there was no question. It had to be Diego. And it had been seven, almost eight years, you know, since Ronnie passed. And, and it was just like, I just wanted, even before I met Ronnie, I was in a constant search for a guy that could sound like Brody James Dio, which I thought was asking for the impossible. So getting in his band was a total dream come true. But then losing him was a total devastation. But this is the type of music that I love, you know, so I, this is the type of music that I'm going to want to create. I like that kind of style of music, the Richie Blackmore Dio, you know, the, the Tony Iommi, Ronnie James Dio, you know, collaboration. That sound is my favorite sound. So that's going to be the kind of thing that I'm going to want to create. And that's just, that's just who I am. You know, so we try to also incorporate some of my other favorite bands. Like there's a little bit of White Snake on the album. There's a little bit of early Van Halen on the album. There's a little bit of early Genesis, you know, some bits and pieces of Rainbow and, and Deep Purple and different eras of that. Uh, but at the same time, trying to f make sure that, you know, I know that just a new mixture of old stuff doesn't make it unique. You know, I have to make it my own, you know, so it was, it was, I was very grateful to have the lineup that we had because everybody brought their A game. And as, yeah, as the songs were put together, it just really, they took, they just took shape beyond, you know, what I thought to be, how it was going to come out to begin with. So Craig, did you or any of the guys in Dio Disciples or the management ever consider Diego to sing in the band? Well, we had a conversation about that, and quite frankly, um, uh, even Simon would say, hey, do you think Diego would, would want to do some of these? And he said no. Diego said no, because he doesn't want to be known as the, the Ronnie James Dio copycat. And I was really, I really, I was really proud of him for saying no. I, I, you know, thank you. I would like to, I would love to, you know, do some concerts with you guys like that. But I don't want to be known as the guy who copies Ronnie. I want to, you know, because he does have on this album. He, and I'm sure you heard, you know, as you know, in Helker, he doesn't always sound like Ronnie. He just has the same type of power and inflection. So when, you know, the things that in the lyrics, when I sent him some of the songs, and lyrically we're supposed to be angry, he sounds angry. You can hear the anger in his voice. When it's supposed to be sad, you can hear the sadness in his voice. He goes from, you know, clean to, to gruff, and, it, and, it's, and it's all, you know, flattering uh, portions of his voice. He doesn't use one unflattering portion of his voice. And some of it does sound like Ronnie, and I'm happy about that because I love that sound. But I never once had to ask him, please be more like Ronnie. It was just, you know... And if you listen to the whole album, there's plenty of areas where he's just being him. And, and, but it just has that same type of power and, and, and emotional inflection. So, Craig, whose idea was it to get Wayne Finley to play in Dreamchild? Mine. Because at the time, uh, as it went down, you know, um, when Serafino says, well, can you get me Rudy? I said, yeah. You know, can you get me Simon? Yeah. He goes, who would you have? Right. And then that's when I said, you know, Jeff Pilsen, Doogie White, Alessandro Del Vecchio, Chaz West. And I'd like to bring Wayne Finley in and do keyboards on this, too, and write with him. Because him and I had a band together. And uh, he also had a name because he had worked with Michael Schenker. And, but also him and I have a really great working relationship. We had a band together before trying to create a rainbow deep purple of the 21st century. But it just never got off the ground. So this gave us a chance you know, to, to do that. So Craig, you said you didn't write music for a long time after Ronnie passed away. And, um, I'm just wondering, did you at all change the songwriting process that you normally use, use for this? Because there's been such a, a gap between the last time you wrote music and this album. Yeah, well, so, uh, there's just, 
I guess it's just if you if you are true to yourself and have a pure agenda, no hidden agenda, but a pure agenda, leave no stone unturned and are willing to do the amount of work that it's required in order to create, you know, the kind of music that you're looking to try to create. Because there's plenty of times when, you know, I, I would have liked to have called the song done, but I just knew deep down inside it needed something more. You know, there was a couple of songs that were finished that then I turned to Wayne and said, Wayne, we got to write some crazy, you know, middle section for this because it just needs to go somewhere, you know, un- unpredictable. And so we, so we did. And it, it was harder. But at the same time, a long time ago when I was a songwriter for Warner Brothers, I learned that because some of my songs got turned down from movies and, and other people, other famous people's music. So I had to study what other people did to the point where I could reproduce it from scratch. Like I could program the drums, play the bass, do the keyboards, knew what the background vocals were, knew what the melody lines, the lyrics, how they worked together. Uh, whether they were metaphors or similes or universal understood stuff or personal um, views and, and everything. And I would create these empty templates. And so it made me work 10 times as hard. But it, as I just pushed through, eventually that became my normal routine. And so a lot of the guys in the 80s didn't really care to use that. So I turned it on to my students. They started flourishing. And so this was the first time that, you know, I got a chance to use that process that I discovered um, with guys who are open-minded enough to go, yeah, let's just, let's do it, you know. And, hey, I think, you know, I think the third line of the first, you know, the second verse needs to be stronger. Let's do this instead. Sure, yeah, no problem. But back when I first discovered uh, and started making these templates, nobody was willing to rewrite their stuff. They were only willing to say, hey, Craig, can you change the chord here and can you change your riff? Sure, no problem. But hey, can you change the second line to the first verse? No, 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 it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. It's fine, it's fine. It's fine. leave it like it is. You know, it's like, okay, man. <laughs> we're asking for that. We're asking for it to be turned down, you know? It needs to be better, you know? No, no, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. And so eventually we finally got guys who were open-minded enough. And through all the collaboration, I think is the key that you have to be brutally honest with yourself because there'll be that little inner voice that just nudges at you and just says, it's not done yet. It's not right. It needs to be stronger. And that's where it really comes in. And then if you don't have the the antidote, one of the guys in the band will, and you got to be willing to collaborate and share. That's why a lot of their names are on these songs, even though some of them, they didn't actually write notes, but what they did to the songs were unmistakably, you know, um, it's like the bass and drums are like the subconscious brain and the guitar and the vocalist are the conscious brain. You can't live with one without the other. But sometimes the bass player and the drummers often get screwed out of uh, songwriting credit. And I don't like that because as far as I'm concerned, you know, the, the way, I mean, Simon played his butt off on this and, and Rudy was great. You know, and I remember when I listened to that Deep Purple Burn album over and over and over again, I would actually hum the drums the drum parts and I would hum the bass part. I knew everything I knew. And it all, it started to make sense to me that wait, this is, this drum part really makes a big, makes a, a huge difference in the song. If it was different, it wouldn't have the same impact. So that's really kind of how it, you don't really know. I don't think you ever really know this is going to be great because sometimes when you know, the one song ends up being somebody else's favorite when you thought it was this other song was going to be their favorite. But deep down inside, as long as you, as long as that inner voice says, okay, it's done. You can rest now and go on to the next one. Then you got a good chance. So Craig, you came back in, in the late nineties to Dio for the, what ended up being the Magica record. But there was a time period before that where, I believe Ronnie considered you and Tracy G to both be in the band. Uh, Do do you think that would have worked? I think it would have been cool, you know, but I understand why Tracy didn't want to do it, you know, because Dio has always been a one guitar band. And um, I think Tracy, I think Tracy knew that, that in a way it kind of would devalue him, you know, because he was the lead guitar player. Then all of a sudden he's going to be the second guitar player. And it was just because, Basically, Ronnie, you know, got started missing those note for note Blackmore solos and note for note Iommi solos instead of the way 
Tracy was doing it. And Tracy did a great job. I was jealous of some of the stuff that Tracy brought to the band because it was some of those dark riffs that I wanted to do that Ronnie told me no. <laughs> I was like, why, why was he telling me no and Tracy yes? And, you know, there's a lot of stuff. But I, I was in learning mode back then. I, I realize it now. You know, that he was, he was teaching me what I needed to know that I didn't know then. Because a lot of those guys already had had their own style and had their own thing going on, and I didn't. So, Ronnie, I was in learning mode. That's why he said no to me when he said yes to those others. But it really, I thought it would have worked, but only because I was happy to just be back in the band, and and I loved what Tracy brought to the band, and, and it was some of the riffs that he came up with, I never in a million years would have thought of. So I thought this would be great. You know, the, the two of us together writing, you know, would have been fantastic, but it was kind of a, it was, it was like Tracy got demoted in his world and he didn't deserve that. You know, and I understand that in his own world, he, he felt like that's, you know, I, you know, he deserves to be the lead guitar player of the band that he's in. And I understand that, yeah. So, Craig, you've been doing shows with Dio Disciples now for a few years. Um, I am curious, is there any Dio song in in the catalogue that you've never played live with Dio Disciples that you'd love to play now? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, wow, that's a really good question. Um, that we never played. A Dio song or just Rainbow Sabbath Dio? No, Craig, just just from the Dio catalog, not not Sabbath or Rainbow. Dio. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, actually, I'd kind of like to do something off the Dream Evil album, like Dream Evil, or um, I'd like to do, because we did do Sunset Superman. I'd like to do, uh, yeah, I would like to do Dream Evil. Um, but that was Ronnie's and mine met our own version of man on the silver mountains. So that means taking out man on the silver mountain that we already play. So we'd have to, but, uh, maybe we can, maybe, I don't know. Uh, there's, um, I wouldn't mind doing, uh, I could have been a dreamer cause that actually became a hit song and I wouldn't mind doing the full length version of all the full sailed away. Cause that was Ronnie was, you know, known for his epics, you know, there was Stargazer and then, and then Gates of Babylon, you know, and then there was, you know, Egypt. And so this was my, my first, you know, collaboration with Ronnie that became an epic. And I wouldn't mind doing a full version of that, but there's, there's lots of songs I'd like to play, but you know, uh, they're mainly like more like from the Dio Black Sabbath era that, 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 I'd really like to yeah. dive into. So, Craig, I have to say that I think the uh, the Dream albums, Dream Evil album, is excellent. I really do enjoy it. You know, it's great to hear music like that again. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that, Richard. Thank you so much. Yeah, no problem, Craig. Just really happy to talk to you. It's nice to, uh, you know, another notch to getting another Dio guitarist off off my list to talk to. Okay, thank you so much, and thank you for being so cool about rescheduling. I really appreciate that. All right, Craig. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you, so have a good rest of the day, and hopefully I'll see you out there. Okay, you too. Have a good night. Thanks, Richard. Okay, right. Bye. Hi, this is Vinny Apice, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. All right, still lots to cover here with episode 400 as we focus on Dio. And up next is Richie's chat with James Curl, author of uh, Ronnie James Dio, a biography of a heavy metal icon, a uh, 244-page book all about the life and times of Ronnie James Dio. So Rich was able to talk to James about how he pulled this whole thing together, and also a little bonus as we get a preview of another book that will be upcoming from James, whole uh, book about Dokken, and I'm sure we're going to have him back on the show again when that one comes out. So, without further ado, here is Richie's talk with author James Curl. Hello. James? Yes. Hi, James. Richie from Focus on Metal. How are you? I'm fine. How are you doing? I'm good. Some guy came asked me the other day, did I know about this Ronnie James Dio book? And I said, no. So he sent me the info, and I said, I'll have to hit this guy up and uh, and see if I can get him on to help him promote it. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic, and I appreciate it. Uh, yeah. I, I spent a long time working on that thing, about 17 months. Wow, wow. So yeah. we, uh, we did something on the show on Ronnie a couple of years ago. Um, 
the album Strange Highways in 1993, that Dio record, we have about 10 hours of audio on that. Right. With Tracy G, Jeff Pilson, Vinnie Appice, everybody. Right. And uh, so we, we have a lot of Ronnie stories anyway. Uh-huh. Um, and I'm, I'm sure you probably talked to a lot of those guys too for the book. Oh, sure. Yeah, about 25 people. Wow. Wow. So what, what made you want to do a book on Ronnie James Steele? Well, I tell you, after he passed away, I waited years and years for a book to come out, and I kept hearing rumors that a book was going to come out. But nothing ever materialized, so I just said, to hell with it, I'll do it myself. Because I had already written a couple of biographies on uh, former heavyweight champions from back in the 1920s and the 1950s. So I knew I could do it. So that's really the reason I did it. That and that I'm, a, I'm also a huge fan of Ronnie. I grew up listening to his music and watching his videos on MTV. And... Uh, it just got into my mind that I wanted to do a book on him, so I started reaching out to people and uh, making contact and talking to guys like Jeff Pilton and Claude Schnell and Tracy G and Rowan Robertson and Vivian Campbell, and it just went from there. Yeah. How, how easy was it for to track down the guys and get them to say yes? Some of them, it was very easy. I went on Facebook or I went to their website pages, and I just sent them a, sent them a message telling them what I was going to do, and they got right back to me. You know, and uh, some of the other guys, I tried to reach out to other guys, and they just they didn't want to talk, or or they want to do their own biography, so they don't want to tell me all their secrets, you know, mm-hmm. which I can I can understand. Yeah. But luckily enough, I got you know I got about twenty five, twenty six people to agree to interviews, and a lot of those were uh, Ronnie's some of Ronnie's early band members from the nineteen late fifties and early sixties, all the way back to his high school days. Yeah so, yeah, so so who in the book do you think was uh, the hardest to track down that said yes? Uh, probably Vivian Campbell. Okay. I had to go through, uh, I had to go through his, I'm not sure what she was, maybe a publicist or a manager. I had to go through certain steps to get a hold of him after I had sent him a message. But uh, once I established that communication, he was more than willing to call my house and talk to me and, and basically give me any information I wanted. You know, two times I spoke with a guy and he was really a great guy and really helpful and really friendly and just a really nice guy. Yeah, I've um, I've interviewed Vivian and I, I met him. And, yeah. uh, you know, he's a fellow Irishman, so I'm not going to knock him. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, I had uh, I had a great time talking to him. He was it was a pleasure to it was a pleasure to talk to all of the guys. Yeah. Now, we you said a minute ago you were a fan of Ronnie's. Um were you conscious of that you didn't want to do a fan book where everything that Ronnie did in his life was great? Absolutely. You, yeah. Absolutely. I wanted to make sure I put in his flaws as well as his as well as the wonderful things about him, you know. Yeah. So I just let the guys talk, and if they told me something negative about him, his personality or anything like that, you know, I put it in the book because I didn't want it to just be, you know, a fan, a fan book where I just say everything good about Ronnie. Yeah. You know, I wanted people to know to know who the man was. You know, good and bad. Yeah, I think it's it's probably important then that you didn't just focus on. Rainbow and after that, you really went into his past a, a, a lot, right? So I'm, I'm sure that was important to you to get that aspect of him out because what I tend to find in a lot of the books is they gloss over the early part of a person's career, and that can have a huge impact on their personality when they actually do become famous. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I thought it was important to get as much of the early info as I could. You know, I talked to Ronnie's uh, early band members from Ronnie and the Red Caps and Ronnie and and the uh, yeah the Red Caps and uh, who else did I talk to? I talked to his uh, cousin Dave Feinstein from the early days in Elf and the Electric Elves. So I went all the way back, you know, and got as much information as I could. And I thought that was important to get all that early stuff, you know. Yeah, was um. Was the Wendy Dio uh, aware that you were actually doing the book? I did send her a couple of emails, and I sent a couple of messages uh, through a website. Uh, I believe it was her management website, but I never did hear back from her. 
So after four or five times, I just stopped trying to make contact. Okay. Yeah. Um, did you do any of the interviews face to face? Yes. As a matter of fact, I I did talk to uh, I talked. No, not really face to face. I guess it was they were all on the phone. But I did meet a lot of the guys. Uh, I did go to Nam, where I met uh, Claude Chanel face to face, and I met Rowan Robertson face to face, and uh, I met Gary Hoey face to face. So I interviewed everybody on the phone, and then wound up meeting most of the guys at Nam last year. Okay. And who were the guys that you really wanted to get? That just said no, that you, you, you couldn't get. They didn't want to do it. I really wanted to get uh, Tony Iommi and Richie Blackmore. I thought those would have been great. But I got messages from both of their management teams that without an endorsement from Wendy, they wouldn't uh, they wouldn't want to participate. Okay. okay. So, I, w- yeah. I, wonder, I wonder why they'd want an endorsement from Wendy when... It's not an authorized biography, anyway. That seems yeah. weird. That just to me seems weird. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I guess they have their reasons, and maybe they have to, you know, cover their butts per se. <laughs> you know. Yeah. But uh, I did try to get those guys, and I tried to uh, reach out to a couple of the other Rainbow members and Deep Purple members and Black Sabbath members. But yeah, those guys were all really hard to get to. Okay. You know, without it being an authorized biography, they didn't really want to talk. Yeah. Um, what about the? Um the guys in the book that weren't musicians, the likes of management and 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 some of those people, did you try and reach, or even people at record labels, did you try and reach that far at all? I did. I, tr- I did speak to a few people like that. I spoke with, uh, interestingly enough, I spoke with the, the lady who runs the Children of the Night Charity Foundation, which Ronnie was a part of. Mm-hmm. And I also spoke with uh, one of the directors out at the Caribou Ranch, where they recorded the Last in Line album. And uh, they gave me all kinds of cool stories about how the band showed up, and uh, they weren't—they didn't know what to expect with a heavy metal band showing up out there in Colorado. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I got all of those great stories in the in the book from people who are non-musicians as well. You know. Yeah. So when you're doing something like this, and you said it took what seventeen months to do it, um, yep. how do you know when you're done, and you stop contacting people? And you, you think to yourself, right, I have enough here to do a, a good representation of the guy. Uh, I just felt, I just felt that it was done when I, when I got to the last chapter, you know, you just, you just feel it. I think I've done uh, five books now. So I just, I knew I was done when I got to the, basically when he, when he passed away and I, I had talked to Claude about his last memories of Ronnie and, uh, that's when that's when I knew I was done. You know, it was just it was a feeling, and I, I knew I had enough. Okay. Did you find that when you were talking to uh, the guys who worked with him, the musicians especially, um, some of the questions that you asked them they didn't want to answer, or were they all pretty open? Oh, they were all very open, very open. There was a couple of stories that I got from some of the guys that said, "Ah, eh, you may not want to put that in the book." But other than that, they were all really open. And, you know, Ronnie didn't have, from what I found, he didn't have a lot to hide, you know? Mm-hmm. So, you know, he was a, pretty much a great guy. <laughs> yeah, well, what about some of the legal stuff? That you, if you put in, you could end up in trouble. Was there much of that? No, there wasn't really any of that, no. I didn't really get into any of that. You know, like I said, there was just a couple of stories that some of the guys suggested maybe, you know, not talking about. But other than that, I didn't really find a lot of dirt on the guy. Okay. You know, he just, he didn't get into a lot of, a lot of stuff like that. So it's really, it's really a pretty clean biography. And was there anything you found out when you were doing the research and talking to the guys that surprised you about Ronnie that you didn't expect? Uh, I would have to say the charity work that he did. I had no idea that he was so involved with charity work and that he cared so much about people. You know, he did a lot of work with uh, Children of the Night Foundation, getting kids off the streets. And uh, I had talked to the, I talked to Lois Lee, Dr. Lois Lee, who ran the foundation, and she said that Rondi was extremely generous with his time and his money. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I was really surprised about that, that he was, he was involved in that, in a lot of the charity work. Yeah, well, I interviewed um, Craig Goldie. I don't know whether you interviewed him for the book. And he told me a story about Ronnie giving him a, 
an envelope when he was at Rothcott. And he, he said, right, I, I'll tell you what's in it. I want you to deliver it. I don't want to do it. It was a fan of the band who couldn't pay his rent. And there was right. a check in the envelope to pay the guy's rent. Right. Absolutely. I heard the same story. It didn't make it into the book, but I heard the same story. Yeah. And he was, he, he, Craig was telling me about this shelter that he had built for drug addicts. And I was just amazed at all these stories that he got. Yeah, it was amazing. You know, Craig was another guy. I tried to get interviews with him, but I couldn't get a hold of him either. <laughs> so, was that because he was in Dio Disciples? Do you think that he was he was like they're hooked up with Wendy? I think so. I think that uh, you know the guys that are that are still employed and working with Wendy, they they tended to stay away from an unauthorized biography. Hmm. It's interesting because when I did the Strange Highways project, I started off with Tracy G. And then Jeff Pilson agreed to meet me in person at a foreigner show, which blew my mind. Right. And it just snowballed from there, but they heard about it. The DO management, heard, someone told them, and Scott Warren contacted me, asking me, could he go on and do it? Right. So, so I, you didn't get a chance to talk to Scott either? No, I didn't get a chance to talk to Scott. As a matter of fact, uh, I had talked to somebody who ran his site, his website or Facebook page, and... and uh, they wanted to charge me money to talk to them. So, and I said, well, I've already talked to, you know, 20 something people and they've all done it for free and I'm not a rich guy and I'm not going to become a millionaire writing a book about Ronnie. So, you know, I'm not going to pay anybody for an interview. So I just dropped it at that point. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what about the rainbow guys other than Richie? Were you able to talk to maybe Tony Carey or, or, or some of those, some of those musicians? I, yeah, I did talk to Tony Carey. I had to actually call him in Germany. Okay. <laughs> and I talked to uh, Bob Daisley. I had to call him in Australia. And let me tell you, those phone call calls are not cheap. No. <laughs> and either, the time difference is something else, too. Right. Yeah, we had to arrange everything, you know. So it was yeah. it was quite interesting talking to those two guys. Yeah, the, the, the problem you're going to have now doing books like this is um, a lot of the guys have passed away. Right. Right, absolutely. Then it's unfortunate because there's so many of the guys I would love to have talked to. Uh, Craig Gruber would have been a great one to talk to, but he passed away a few years back. But yeah, exactly. The guys are just uh, they're passing on. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Cozy Powell would have been another one. Oh, that would have been fantastic to talk to him. Yeah, and uh, oh well, I, I I just missed out talking with Jimmy Bain. Oh yeah. You know, and that would have been another great one. And, uh, you know, Vivian Campbell and I, we, we talked about Jimmy Bain for a while during our interview. And, you know, just a great guy. I would love to have talked to him. Yeah. And what about, um, did you talk to a lot of the musicians that didn't play with Ronnie, but knew him? I did. I did play with, uh, or I did speak with some musicians who didn't play with them. Uh, Chaz West was a guy that... He played at a concert and met Ronnie, and he told me an entire story about meeting Ronnie. So I put all of that in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were a few other guys that, uh, actually, Ronnie's hairdresser, Joey Belfiore. <laughs> uh, I spoke with him. He was the only guy to touch Ronnie's hair for you know twenty years, and he just gave me a ton of great stories, including what Ronnie named his hair. Of course, everybody's going to have to read the book to find out what Ronnie named his hair. <laughs> but it's all in there. Yeah, yeah. So do you have a particular era of Dio that you're 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 the biggest fan of? Like, is it Rainbow Sabbath or a solo band? I would say a solo band. I would say the, you know, the, the early stuff. I, I love the early Dio stuff, but I love Rainbow. I love it all, really. But yeah, I would say the the early stuff because that's what I grew up with, and I remember watching uh, you know the Last in Line video and the Mystery video and and Holy Diver and all of that on MTV as a young kid, mm-hmm. you know, twelve, thirteen years old, watching all that. So that's my favorite favorite era. Okay. So how 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 up to date is the book? Does it include the hologram at all in it? Uh, no, I don't talk at all about the hologram. Uh, but it goes all the way up to the point of his passing. Okay. So. Okay. Anything after that? No, I don't don't get into the hologram or anything like that. Okay. So what what's next on your radar? Are you going what, are you going to tackle another musician next? 
I'm actually working on a book about Dawkins. Oh, the band or the person? Uh, just the band. Yeah, it's not going to be a biographical book on any one person, but it's going to cover the career of Dawkins, and I'm going to do a review on each album and talk about the making of each album. And, uh, you know, get pretty in-depth with, with the beginning of Dawkins and then the whole entire career and then uh, all the albums. Okay, and who, so. who have you spoken to in the band? Anybody yet? Uh, um, actually, Jeff Pilson, I should be talking to him today, and I'm trying to get uh, it worked out to speak with Don Dawkins. Okay. Actually, I uh, sent Mick Brown an email, but he said that he is saving his story. He doesn't want uh, to give away any of his secrets. He's saving his story. He wants to do his own biography. Okay. Have you ever spoken to Mick? No, I haven't, but from what I understand, he's a great guy. He's superb. I, I spoke to him. Uh, about a year ago, I did an interview with him, and I asked one question, and he talked for about ten minutes. <laughs> like, yeah. Very, very talkative, very funny, very, very honest as well. Yeah, very boisterous, from what I understand, and laughable, and uh, just a super. I would love to have talked to him and I explained to him what I was doing, but he said, "Yeah, he's saving all of his stories for his own book." So, are you gonna are you gonna talk to um? Like Red Beach, John Levin, Barry Sparks. Are you going to go that in depth? Yeah, I'm going to try to reach out to everybody. I've got a lot of messages out right now. I'm I'm trying to get a hold of different guys, and I've uh, yeah, I'm going to try to get a hold of anybody I can to uh, to help me out with the docking book and give me you know I'd like to get a hold of some of the guys from from the Sunset Strip guys you know from Rat and 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 a Quiet Riot and guys like that to give me, uh, you know, the early history of Dawkins because they all played together back in 79, 80, 81, mm-hmm. you know. So I'm trying to reach out to all of those guys just to get any bits and pieces of stories I can put together. Yeah, it's it's interesting you're doing a Dawkins book because I can't think of one that's out there. Yeah, I, I sent a message to Jeff Pilson and he said, wow, yeah, there's no book on Dawkins yet. And I said, well, I'm going to start working on one. <laughs> so I'm supposed to talk to him today at some point. He said he's in the studio, and if he gets a moment, he'll give me a call. Yeah, so I have a few questions. He's a great guy. And yeah, I spoke with him when I did the uh, deal book. Actually, he wrote the foreword for the book, and uh, we had a great conversation. Really nice guy. Yeah. Really nice yeah. guy. Yeah, so when do you think the docking book will be done? When it's done? <laughs> uh, it'll take probably 10 to 12 months, and okay. then it'll be it'll be out. Okay, and are you going to try and go after the likes of maybe Neil Kern and Michael Wagner? Some of the yeah, I already spoke with Michael Wagner. Oh, you already spoke to him? Yep, I got him on voice record. He told me some of the early history of Dawkins and some of the, uh, you know, when he came over from Germany the first time and slept on Don's couch and they were selling cars and, and, and exactly how he met Don because I wanted to know exactly how he met Don. So Wow, I can't, yeah, wait. I can't wait to read that one as well. Oh yeah, great guy. <laughs> So how, how long does it normally take you to write a book? Are you normally pretty quick at doing it? Oh, I would say right around a year. Okay. It takes about a year. You know, a little longer for the deal book because I just had other projects going on. But about a year, you know, you have to... I, I've self-published, so I have to put the entire book together myself. I have to pay for all the photos, pay for the rights to use quotes... I have to uh, arrange the whole book and build it from scratch, design a cover for it, you know. So it's a lot of work. It's it's a tremendous amount of work. Wow. And then, of course, you know, you're lucky if you recoup your money, you know. You have fifteen hundred, two grand in a book, you know. I was just, and, about, I was just about to ask you that. Like, all yeah. that effort, is it, is it really worth it? it? It is worth it because I do it, I don't do it for money, per se. You know, I do it because I love to do it, and I love to write about rock and roll, and I love to write about boxing, and I love to write about things like that. So it's really kind of my art, if you want to go that far, you know? Yeah. Uh, If you make a few bucks off it, great, you know? The problem with that, though, if you're self-publishing, is just say you went into the Ronnie biography, and you only got eight or nine people that can talk to you, and you don't have a complete story. You've already right. put money into it, and it's it's you can't tell it properly. So what do you right. do? Yeah, you move on to another project. Wow. You know? So that's why I'm hoping I can get a lot more uh, people involved in the docking book. I can get the whole entire story, you know. It'd be great to get all four of the original members involved in it. But, uh, 
you know, it, it'll it'll still be a good look, even if I just get a couple of the members involved, and then some of the guys off to the side, and some record producers and stuff like that. Yeah, it'll be it'll still still be great. Yeah, I think some of these guys. I think you're right, though. I think some of these guys are saving the stories for their own books because they're all well, they are. You know, they're, they're getting a little 60s. older and they're yeah. thinking of retirement, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, they're thinking, well, I don't want to tell all my stories to this guy. I'll just I'll just have somebody write my book and I'll make all the money. <laughs> which is, you know, which is completely understandable, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, but, yeah, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. Okay. I, I'm fascinated with the how books are written, like from when, when the, the inception of it. How many ideas do you have, and then how many do you throw away before you get a good one? And then you have to start trying to contact the guys, and then how many no's do you get before you say, oh, no, I'm not going ahead with this? And I'm right. sure I'm sure it must be on some level it's very rewarding to actually talk to these guys, but it must be so frustrating at times doing it. Yeah, no, it is rewarding. It's rewarding to to get a book written and see it see it you know start and then see it finished and have it published and sitting on your shelf in the room. And uh, it's it is rewarding talking to some of these guys because I grew up listening to a lot of these guys. Most of these guys, you know, through the seventies and eighties, and some of them are are your heroes, you know, your guitar heroes and whatnot. And, and it is it's it's kind of cool just to get them on the phone and hear their stories. Yeah, and how many of the guys that you interviewed for the Dio book have I, I've got back to you? Have any of them read it? Yeah, a couple of them have, and they like they really like the book. Everybody's given it really positive reviews, and and. Uh, you know, I haven't read, I haven't heard anybody yet say it sucks. <laughs> Everybody, and people seem to particularly like the uh, the early info, you know, when Ronnie was in high school and uh, what it was like uh, for him. You know, he was, he, they didn't know that he played trumpet and bass, you know, before he was a singer. So they, a lot of people really liked that, the, the early days from the 50s and 60s. Yeah, well, I think a lot of that stuff, you have to go digging to find it because there's a story there with that. And if that was today, there'd be so much stuff out there on social media that there's no mystique about it. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah. Everything, nothing was recorded back in the day. So you're just hoping to get people who were eyewitnesses, you know, that's all you can do because nobody had a cell phone recording this stuff. There was a lot of gigs Ronnie played back in the day, hundreds of gigs that never got recorded. So all I had was uh, I had some of the original members from the 50s and 60s actually that played with Ronnie. You know, that way I got their stories, mm-hmm. you know, and that's that's all you can do nowadays. Because, yeah. yeah, like you're saying, nothing was recorded. Yeah, well, I have to say I, I can't wait to read the book and I can't wait to read the Dockham book, too, when that's done. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been working. I was working on it this morning, as a matter of fact, and uh, I'm excited about that one. It's actually a pretty good story, really good story. Uh, everything came together and how they all met, and, and the whole Sunset Strip during the '70s and '80s. I'm, I'm doing a, a bit of the history all about the Sunset Strip. And so, yeah, just they, like they definitely have a story. Docking. Oh yeah. Yeah, I think they were unique in a lot of ways, you know. They, they're they always lumped in with the, the hair metal and the glam metal. And in some sense, they 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 were, but they were also very unique, you know. I, and I think, and a bit underrated. Yeah, you know? I, I think they broke up when they were just about to become an arena band. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, they had, what, three platinum albums. They were They were on a roll, and, but, you know. And I've I've done a lot of research so far, so I got the story down, and and there was a lot of turmoil in there, and uh, but yeah, it's a great story. I can't wait to get it out. I think it's gonna be a cool book. Yeah, well, uh, I'm gonna leave you go. It's been a, an absolute pleasure talking to you. So just hey, thank um, you. Just let the people know where they can where they can get the Dio book. Yeah, well, they can get it on Amazon, or they can get it uh, directly from me. They can send me an email at curl c u r l. 88, that's two eights, at hotmail.com. And I'll be glad to send them a copy. Or like I said, it's on Amazon. I have a Facebook page. It's on Barnes & Nobles, all the uh, outlets online. Excellent, excellent. Well, I can't wait to read it. I'm a huge T.O. Yeah. fan. Hey, thank you very much. It was, it's been fun. <laughs> yeah, all right. Have a good rest of the day. Okay, bye. Okay, no problem. Bye. All right, there is Richie's chat with author James Curl. And again, looking forward to that uh, docking book coming out as well. But in the meantime, 
definitely go grab yourself a copy of Ronnie James Dio, a biography of a heavy metal icon. And as uh, James told you, uh, it's available on Amazon, a bunch of other places. And of course, you can uh, always drop him a line at uh, his Hotmail account and order a copy right from him. So there you go, a wrap up for episode 400. And I think that I managed to find all of the Dio related or past Dio band member IDs that we have back in our library. I think I got them all. I actually felt a little bit like talking metal with a whole bunch of them up on the front end of the show. I know that Richie and I enjoyed talking to every last one of those guys. And maybe by episode 500, We'll have uh, knocked off Rowan Robertson as well and gotten all of the Dio guitarists under our belt. But anyways, that is uh, that is it for episode 400. And just a heads up, we are in the, uh, the final weeks of 2018. And of course, that means that we are three weeks away from our annual winter break. That's right. The show we're putting out on Christmas week will be, of course, the last one for 2018. And then the last one for a few weeks as we take a few weeks of uh, January to just kind of decompress, recharge, and ready to charge back into the land of Focus on Metal. Those few weeks that you're going to be without some brand new shows, you can, of course, go to focusonmetal.net and still get your weekly fix from past episodes of Focus on Metal. So that's it for this week. There ain't no more stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, hope you enjoyed the past 400 episodes. Looking forward to uh, bringing you 400 more. But for now, until we talk to you again next week, as always, remember... Focus on Metal! Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.